Hello, everybody. Welcome to this episode of You Are Good. I am one of your hosts, Alex Steed. I'll be joined by my fantastic co-host, Sarah Marshall, momentarily. We're talking about dick with our great friend, Alyssa Sangsirde. Alyssa has a new book out this week. Uh, we'll talk about all that and more momentarily. But first, we have a couple other things to tell you, like... You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies is made possible with your support. Thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon, patreon.com slash you are good. If you support us there, you get bonus episodes. We have a bonus episode up right now about center stage. We have a new one coming out relatively soon about uh, grief and mourning. It's more of us if that's something you're into. Or, you know, you can just support the show because you like supporting the show because you get the show for free right here. If you have a couple bucks to support it, we appreciate that and we appreciate you. And of course, if you're not in a position to do so, don't worry about it. We're just happy that you're here. Uh, you Are Good is also made possible with support by Knack Factory, K-N-A-C-K Factory, a commercial and creative video content production company with offices in Portland, Maine, and Nashville, Tennessee, though they do work throughout these here United States. If you need that sort of work done, get in touch with the fine folks at Knack Factory. We have playlists that come out with each week's episode. You can find a playlist linked in the show notes. These are songs that we think about when we think about this movie. These are songs that we think about when we think about this conversation. You will enjoy it. I can assure you. This is a wild week for a lot of different reasons. Hopefully, if you're in a position to do so, uh, please support a local abortion fund. We just did so in the name of the show. We made a donation. Uh, We hope that you'll do the same if you're able to do so. We'll have a link uh, to something along those lines so you can find what's in your area, etc. in the show notes as well. All right, let's talk about this movie. Let's talk about Dick. Dick is a 1999 American comedy film directed by Andrew Fleming. It's a comic reimagining of the Watergate scandal, which ended in the presidency of Richard Tricky Dick Nixon and features several cast members from Saturday Night Live and Kids in the Hall. And of course, it stars Kirsten Dunst and Michelle Williams as uh, Betsy and Arlene. It is fabulous. We're going to have a grand time. Sarah wanted to do a spring movie and she felt like this was a great spring movie. And I agree. All right. I don't have anything else very interesting to say outside of the fact that, of course, you, my friend, are good. And I am so glad that you're here. We are grateful to and for you. Thanks for uh, coming here and helping us do this thing. We really appreciate you. All right. Let's talk about Dick. Hello, Sarah Marshall. Hello, Alex Steed. How's it going? It's going all right. I'm so excited about this movie. Me too. This movie has a 6.2 rating on IMDb, and I think it's an 8.7. That is a bad rating. Your rating is good. My rating is correct. (laughs) And I, I was telling my mom that we were talking about it, and I was like, we are talking about the greatest movie ever to depict Nixon. And she was like, oh, the Anthony Hopkins one. And I was like, no. no. You're like, you are wrong. And that is bad. I mean, maybe the Anthony Hopkins one is good. I have no memory of it. I've seen it a couple times. It doesn't spark joy for me. And let me tell you, I wasn't watching the Anthony Hopkins one with my roommate the night of, I believe, Trump's third debate in 2016. <laughs> I was watching this. Mm. And my roommate is here now. Who is it? <laughs> It's Alyssa. Alyssa, who the heck are you? I am a writer and editor. I now live in Philadelphia in the house that I lived in with Sarah when we watched Dick instead of watching the third presidential debate. And I work for a place called Electric Literature, and I have a novel coming out called Little Rabbit. Oh, fantastic. I'm so excited about this. When is this novel out, by the way? It's out May 3rd, so two weeks from now, but possibly in the past from whenever anyone is listening to this. I don't know how Probably things like right work. at the same moment, but it's a Taurus, people. Get excited. It's an extreme Taurus. It's very <laughs> much a Taurus baby book. <laughs> Sarah. Yes. Tell us about Dick. Oh, my God. I love Dick. Okay. We're just going to do the Dick jokes as much as we want because the movie sure does. You don't even have to say it. It's just implied. We're talking about Dick. (laughs) We're talking about Dick. Who doesn't love Dick? Only people who don't. People who do, they love it. So, okay. Dick is a movie that basically is like 
Well, you said it was a cross between Romy and Michelle's high school reunion and Forrest Gump, which I think is completely true. And I would say it's also it's got some quantum leap DNA for sure. Oh, wow. Because yeah. it would always be like in practically every episode of Quantum Leap, there would be this thing of like, you know, the Heimlich maneuver. Scott Bakula taught that to Heimlich himself. So good job, Scott Bakula. It's a sneaky too, because like it's about the girls, but really it's like quantum leap if Scott Bakula was pot cookies. Yes. Because like really the thing that changes everything in this movie is these girls, but also via pot cookies. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So there's some like Cheech and Chong DNA yeah. in there also. It's just a mixture of so many wonderful things. Oh, great. And it also feels true to history, which is that the work of women and teen girls is frequently erased because it's quote embarrassing exactly yes and because woodward and bernstein got to get all the high fives for themselves (laughs) and so basically this movie tells the story of the watergate scandal which in real life i believe stretched out over about 18 months of pressure before nixon resigned and in this movie takes place one wonderful springtime (laughs) and if you don't know the story of watergate before going into this movie i think it does a pretty good job explaining And the essentials of Watergate basically is that the reason all of our scandals now end with gate is because Watergate took place at the Watergate Hotel, which was the site of, I believe, the Democratic Party headquarters, something like that. And it involved Nixon, the sitting president, hiring burglars to raid the Dems to try and figure out intelligence that would allow Nixon to win a reelection or something. And Nixon also was just lying about a bunch of stuff and covering it up. And that's kind of the broader sin of the Nixon administration. And also continuing with the Vietnam War once it was essentially a mathematical certainty that it was unwinnable. So in Dick, the Watergate Hotel is also home to Arlene Lorenzo, a teen girl played by Michelle Williams, and her best friend Betsy Jobs, who is played by Kirsten Dunst. And these girls are just like, they're incredible. Like, I think they both have been working for a really long time at this point. It's their movie. And just from the beginning, they're completely wonderful. And so we open with Betsy typing up a letter very slowly for Arlene to enter the win a date with Bobby Sherman contest. (laughs) (laughs) Bobby Sherman, to me, is best known for singing the theme song to Here Come the Brides. I think he's one of those people who was super famous in the 70s, and now people don't talk about him unless they were there. Yeah, it was it was a perfect subject of their affection, which is like someone who was yeah. very important at the time and just didn't even get captured in any nostalgia wave about the decade. Like, none. Yeah. It's not Sean Cassidy. It's not David Cassidy. It's Bobby Sherman. And so the girls decide to sneak out past... Arlene's snoozing mom, played by Terry Garr, who just fucking every role in this movie is fantastic. This cast is just stacked with comedy greats. And so that nobody in the lobby sees them and tells Arlene's mom that she was sneaking out to mail her Bobby Sherman letter, they put tape over (laughs) one of the door latches so they can get back in and out through the stairwell. So they go mail the letter. And then while they're going back to Arlene's place, they run into someone who turns out to be G. Gordon Liddy, played by Harry Shearer. And we see them deploy their defense mechanism when they're cornered, which is to start shrieking and just kind of like run at and past the person. So because of the tape that Arlene put on the door, the security guard notices signs of an attempted burglary and the Watergate burglars are nabbed. And so what will become the Watergate scandal is kicked off. This movie would also be a great companion to all the president's men. Mm -hmm. We got pretty direct with the references as it goes on. Okay. Next day, fortuitously, Arlene and Betsy's class, they're in 10th grade, I think, because they're 15, is going to the White House. And so while they're in the White House, who should they see but that guy from the stairwell with what appears to be TP on his shoe? And so because they're good citizens, they try to tell him. And they talk to him briefly, and then he walks away leaving the TP, except it's not TP. It says creep, and then a list of names and amounts of money. And the girls are like, I guess it's people the president thinks are creeps. (laughs) And then H.R. Haldeman, played by Dave Foley of the Kids in the Hall, 
decides to take the girls aside and figure out how much they knew because Liddy's like, I saw those girls at the Watergate Hotel. And so he takes them to a conference room. He figures out that they really like are not putting together what's going on because honestly, how could they? And while this is happening, they catch sight of the president himself and the presidential dog at the time, who was not Checkers. It was an Irish setter named King Timaho, I believe. <laughs> Which is, don't, why would you name your dog that? I guess they could have called him Timmy. But the conceit here is that Nixon just can't remember it's not Checkers and just calls him Checkers and we all call him Checkers. So Checkers runs over because Eileen has a special literal dog whistle, not just saying states' rights. That will only become a dog whistle <laughs> under Reagan. And then Nixon, in order to keep an eye on the girls and make sure they don't know too much about Watergate, appoints them official White House dog walkers. I read on IMDb that Kirsten Dunst and Michelle Williams thought that maybe Dan Hedaya was overacting and all the people who were around under the Nixon administration were like, no, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so they are really excited to be appointed presidential dog walkers. No one in their class believes that this has happened because it's a mistrunchable rule of make reality so intense that it seems unreal. Then they get home and find out that Betsy's brother has just received his draft letter. Betsy's brother is played by Brian from My So-Called Life. Oh, shit. Wow. Whoa. Yes. <laughs> I saw this movie twice in 12 hours and did not catch that. That's amazing. <laughs> so the girls decide to make cookies for the president. And so they make Hello Dollies, which is a secret recipe that they have embroidered in a big plaque on the wall. And it involves like condensed milk and graham cracker crumbs and walnuts and brian krakow was like don't forget the walnut leaves man because he's made the like truly interesting choice of keeping his weed in a container of walnuts that is in the family's kitchen and if anyone knows anything about cooking with weed this is the furthest fetched piece of the entire movie yeah yes and it's fine. <laughs> it's like two <laughs> tablespoons of shake that is making it into these yes. cookies and it's like changing history. That's just stirred directly in, <laughs> in with the dry ingredients, maybe. Yeah. And it just immediately makes you high, apparently, but that's fine. This is a fantasy and I love yeah. it. No one can smell it, too. <laughs> Alex, we don't know that Brian Krakow doesn't have a friend who got this like really scientifically unique. We don't know. We don't know. Who got like 2,000. <laughs> 2022 weed back in the 70s that would just like yeah. make you die. <laughs> no, we got like 2050 weed <laughs> where you have like one leaf and you're like, peace, peace among men. But the, I do love that weed was like, I guess, so feared because of the like white supremacist propaganda behind it mid century that it like it seemed to be like so powerful in the opposite direction, maybe because there's also the Cheech and Chong movies where like, what is it? They're like driving the weed car mm -hmm. and the cop just like, I guess that would probably happen if you could make a weed car. <laughs> <laughs> so I think you're right with the racialized connotation of weed is a huge part of it. But I also always thought that it was like these kind of guys who are like, I can't be out of my right mind because if I'm out of my right mind, I might accidentally see how fucked up my life is. <laughs> right. Know? The abject terror. I might see that I'm defending us being in Vietnam. <laughs> yes. And so they bring the Hello Dollies to the White House. And at first, security won't let them in, but then they do get in because they go inside to try and make a disturbance. And then Kissinger sees them. He met them the other day. And then we get one of my favorite like throwaway lines that I don't think I noticed in whole watching at this time where Kissinger is lecturing them about why it's going to be hard to and the Vietnam War. And he's like, you know, it took Charles de Gaulle four years to yeah. <laughs> withdraw from Algeria. And Betsy's like, that's so true. <laughs> so good. It's so funny. All of the Kissinger pieces are so funny. Like, they're so funny. So, and Kissinger is played by Saul Rubinek. And I'll, I didn't know this before. I've always been watching it being like, DC is so pretty. They didn't film it there. They filmed it in Toronto. So Toronto is so pretty. And Saul Rubinek is Canadian. So good for him. And there's a lot of Canadians in this movie and not just because there are two kids in the hall in this movie. And so Saul Rubinek, Henry Kissinger takes them up to see the president. And Nixon's like, oh, just the girls I wanted to see. And we also meet Anna Gasteyer playing Rosemary Wood, Nixon's secretary, who 
famously, according to her, accidentally erased 18 and a half minutes of Nixon's personal tapes by, again, according to her, like leaning across a room and putting her fingers simultaneously on two buttons that were like six feet apart. (laughs) I believe her. Millions don't. (laughs) So they go in and talk to the president. They give him the hello dollies and they immediately start working. He's like, these are the yummiest cookies I've ever had. (laughs) And then... I think the next thing after that is that he brings them to a meeting with Brezhnev and Brezhnev also gets high. All the Soviets do. And then they all sing Hello, Dolly together yeah. <laughs> from the musical Hello, Dolly. And then they negotiate a peace accord. Carolyn hasn't seen this movie and I sent her that minute and a half of like as soon as the girls walk in and then they sing Hello, Dolly. And then Nixon essentially says, girls, you just basically like facilitated world peace or something along those lines, which is great. And Carolyn was just like, this is anarchy. Like, what is happening in this movie? (laughs) It's a dream of anarchy for sure. That scene is perfect. That is a perfect 90 seconds. Yes. The guy who they have playing Brezhnev. Oh, my God. You, and you've talked about this, but there's something so funny about optimistic enthusiasm in the face of everything. Yes. And the second we meet these girls, they are an absolute delight. <laughs> like their energy is just fantastic. And it's incredible. And then to see them juxtaposed against these hideous men. Right. These hideous <laughs> men. <laughs> singing hello dolly because of their pot cookies it's so fucking funny like this is the funniest shit that's ever been in a movie (laughs) yes and the truest as well and i neglected to mention because it all happens so fast that the day before when nixon gets high eating the cookies they're like you should end the vietnam war and arlene makes a really great point i think this is amazing she says well you know no one in my high school is talking about communism but we're all talking about this guy because he got drafted. Yeah. Yeah. That's what kids were talking about. Like he needed youth yeah. advisors. And so Nixon is like, all right, we're ending the Vietnam War. <laughs> and then he does. And so Brian doesn't have to go to war. I think of this as like the teen lawyerification of all the president's men. <laughs> yes. Oh my God. Well, I was watching it this time and I was like, this movie just is the direct inspiration for teen lawyer. Cause yeah. the whole point is like teen girl optimism And like you are strong, not in spite of being a teen girl, but because you're a teen girl, which maybe society needs to hear because we saw how badly that can go in the other direction with poor little Lizzie Holmes, Mm -hmm. who is like, I'm not a teen girl. I'm Steve Jobs. And like, don't be Steve Jobs. Be yourself. Be Kirsten Dunst, if that's who you are. (laughs) So, okay, so Vietnam War ends. Peace Accords. Nuclear disarmament is, I think, involved in the Hello Dolly scene. And then. Things basically shift because Arlene falls in love with Dick, (laughs) obviously, Nixon, the president. And we have lots of scenes, you know, where Betsy is like, just tell me the truth, Arlene. And Arlene's like, I love Dick. (laughs) And it's great. We love it. And also the dynamic between the two is that like Arlene is kind of the smart, bossy one. And Betsy has like complete and utter faith in Arlene's intelligence and ability to figure anything out. And because of that, they can figure anything out. This is the Laverne and Shirley dynamic as well. It's the Mary and Rhoda dynamic, which they refer to explicitly. Yes. And also the the Romy and Michelle dynamic, right? Because Romy is like the bossy, smart one. And Michelle is like, you can figure anything out. It'll be fine. So they're in the Oval Office. Or no, they're at Rosemary Wood's desk, I think. And they find Nixon's tape recorder and Betsy's like, leave a message for him and tell him how you really feel. Maybe he loves you, too, but he doesn't think you love him, which again is like, oh, my God, they're 15. And so (laughs) Arlene leaves a message. She leaves a message for 18 and a half minutes (laughs) and sings an Olivia Newton-John song. And then (laughs) after she's done recording, she goes to see if it recorded accidentally fast forwards. And then the girls hear Nixon, you know, plotting to do corrupt stuff, being anti-Semitic and being mean to checkers, apparently kicking him on tape. And so the girls have a meeting with him and they're like, we don't think you've been completely honest with us. And he's like, this is about that Watergate and those Woodward and Bernstein commies trying to smear me. And he like gets really, you know, angry and pointy. And then they're like, 
well, actually, it was just about the dog. (laughs) (laughs) You act like you like him, but we don't think you do. (laughs) But then they're like, maybe this Watergate thing is serious, too. It's a beautiful illustration of like how often conflict is like, I'm just telling you literally what a thing is and you're bringing to a situation all of your guilt and baggage and shame. And you're like, (laughs) you're like, it's about this, isn't it? And it's like, no, it's just about the dog. Be nicer to dogs. <laughs> it's also a very good and like proof of like how like men just don't listen and if you listen for three seconds you could have yeah, avoided right. like revealing that you were part of Watergate. <laughs> and then while they're running out after he's scary and shouty, they run into John Dean, played by Jim Brewer of Saturday Night Live, and he's like trying to apologize for the president and smooth it over. And I forget which one of them says this, but they're like, if you stay, you're just as bad as he is. And I love his reaction to it. It's so great. He's like, he's like crushed completely. (laughs) (laughs) And it's so, yeah, it's perfect too, because like Jim Brewer's turned out to be like a right wing asshole. Oh no. He's like the one right winger in this movie that has any heart from the beginning. (laughs) Right. It was lovely seeing him for this moment, do the right thing with a bad ideology. (laughs) Right. And John was I think the first Nixon staffer to resign or the first person to turn on Nixon he was like the Michael Cohen Mm. of the administration I guess by the way I fucking love Michael Cohen. It's like if Luca Brasi decided to like turn on Don Corleone. He's the best. So the girls run out. We have like two consecutive scenes of Arlene like running away from the White House and Betsy chasing her, which I love. Also, every single outfit in this movie is perfect. Every single thing the girls wear, often in combination, is perfect. They always look amazing. The clothes are like playful and fun and they're fantastic. And so after this, they decide to prank call Woodward and Bernstein because they know (laughs) that they're the reporters who are working on the Washington Post story. And they do so the night that Brian Krakow is caught at a porno movie. What porno movie, you ask? Deep Throat. And so (laughs) they arrange to meet Woodward and Bernstein in a parking garage. And I think basically because Brian Krakow is in the hallway at the moment, they're being asked for an alias. They're like, deep throat, deep throat. And so they put on their trench coats and they meet Woodward and Bernstein, who are unimpressed by them being teen girls. And Woodward and Bernstein are played by Will Ferrell. And I think my favorite role he's ever been in and Bruce McCullough, our second kid (laughs) in the hall. And they need to get more documentation because Betsy's dog ate the creep list out of her scrapbook because she spilled her grilled cheese on it. And so they decide to go and rob Haldeman's house, (laughs) which they accomplish by seeing Ryan Reynolds in the driveway. And so they're like, that must be Haldeman's son. I forgot what Ryan Reynolds looked like at this age, and it was kind of jarring. I feel jarring. like he kind of looks the same. Like, what? How do you? How would you describe it, though? Well, it's like when a baby still has like the adult face that they're about to grow into, but it's like a baby. <laughs> That's like, exactly yeah. right. Totally. Yeah. Like Ryan Reynolds, like looks like a man <laughs> now with a capital M. Mm-hmm. Like that mean in all the things that means. And here he looks like a man who is also a baby. Right. Because he's very soft and sort of round. (laughs) Yeah. And also very tall. Yeah. Yeah. And in 70s clothes, which is also very funny. (laughs) Yeah. Like a lot of squishiness, but also like very tight shirts. Yeah. It's so funny. And so Kirsten Dunst is like, hey, do you remember me? It's me. And he's like, yeah. And so she gets inside and they start making out. And she also like... I love this. She like swishes her hair back and forth across his face. (laughs) It's so weird and beautiful. And it turns out that he's not Haldeman's son. He's Haldeman's son's roommate from boarding school who's visiting his house for some reason. But it doesn't matter because Arlene is able to steal the tapes and then they escape with the information. Oh, and then Haldeman comes home and he's like, on the phone while Arlene is hiding under his desk and he's like, I've got a particularly incriminating tape right here, (laughs) which she also gets. And so they meet up with Woodward and Bernstein again. They don't give them the tapes. They keep them as souvenirs, but they give them transcripts because Betsy has passed typing now. (laughs) And then Woodward and Bernstein break 
the Watergate story completely. They tie the president definitively to knowledge of the break-in and having paid off the burglars. Things are hairy for a while, like the girls are being followed around and surveilled by the president. They're being harassed by Woodward and Bernstein to back up their information, which leads to my favorite line in this movie. We have a very important school report on turquoise jewelry due in two days, and we can't find any books on it, and the president is having us followed. It's too much pressure. (laughs) But the story breaks, and within a scene, Nixon is resigning. And the girls have single-handedly ended the Vietnam War and caused Nixon to resign. And then the last scene is them with the beautiful line, isn't it illegal to cut up the flag? Not if you sew it back together again. They cut up an American flag, make outfits out of it, and then go onto the roof and hold up a banner that says, you suck, dick, love deep throat. (laughs) Or maybe it's deep throat. As Nixon is leaving in Marine One and looking out over the city. And the country he once ruled. <laughs> the end. Dancing queen. <laughs> you also forgot an important point, which is that Nixon is played by Cher's dad from Clueless. <laughs> so yeah. I spent the whole time thinking of him as President Cher's dad. <laughs> yeah, I bet he'll get there someday. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Elizabeth, what is your relationship with the movie? Why is this a movie that it made sense for you to come in and chat about? Well, for one thing, I watched it with Sarah, but I don't have any memory of the first time we watched it, which I don't under, like, I like, when Sarah was like, don't you remember when we watched this movie? And I'm like, I know we watched this movie, but I can't remember any of it. It was kind of a stressful time. (laughs) I think it was a stressful time. I think it was also, I probably was stowed and I was like unaccustomed to like legalized weed at that point. So like, that was not great for my memory. (laughs) Were we ever so young? Yeah, 2016. We were like, this Donald Trump guy. People seem to like him. But it's not gonna hmm. not gonna go yeah. anywhere, right? Like, oh, let's just watch let's no. just watch Dick <laughs> instead of this third debate. <laughs> I still feel good about watching Dick instead of the third debate. But I yeah. think that was a very good choice. <laughs> I, I don't think we needed to watch yeah. that. But I was like wondering why, like when I watched it again, I was like, Oh yeah, I definitely did watch this. But I think part of the reason I don't remember it as I didn't remember it the first time is that my parents came to the States in 1976. So I think I have a different relationship to Watergate than like a lot of other people do. Because like my in-laws, for example, are like Watergate super fans. And I feel like this movie (laughs) is like made for Watergate super fans, but also weirdly marketed to teenage girls. (laughs) Yeah. And then I full confession the second time I watched Dick and then I immediately started watching all the president's men. So I had like a very deep Mm. like Watergate weekend and was just like, Mm. if you're not a Watergate super fan, it is pretty confusing. There's like three lawyers named John. There's so many (laughs) white guys in suits. And even they acknowledge in the movie, they're like, all these guys look the same. Like the girls at some point, they're like, which of them was it? And they're like, they all look the same. Yeah, that's great. The brilliance of the movie is that like, they all do look the same. And also like, this is like kind of really how like Watergate sort of happened. Like it really was like, this is for my wikipedia after the fact, but like it really was like a lot of women who were like the real sources for Bernstein and Woodward, like all this Mm. Tension was on Deep Throat, but like if you watch all the president's men, it's like the bookkeeper who actually gives them like real information and tells them where the money is going. And so it's like really not that far fetched to have like two teenage girls like bringing down President Dan Hidea shares. <laughs> <laughs> it's also just like the per- it is the perfect Sarah Marshall movie. I mean, it's teen girls, Aww. it's politics, it's the nineties, it's great outfits, it's colorful raincoats. What work are you at? <laughs> I'm so happy that you associate those things with me. I mean, that's definitely, yeah, I love all those things so much. And I, it never occurred to me that this is like a very slight dramatization of what we get in the actual All the President's Men, where, yeah, they're just constantly bothering women to get information. And they're like, come on, yeah. jeopardize your job for me for no credit. Come on. Yeah, come on. I'm Dustin Hoffman. <laughs> people are watching you, but don't you want to give us some info? And the whole tying it together, the end piece where it's like, we've decided to not name you. It's so fucking perfect. Like, where it's like, yeah. we've decided to not na- name who you are. And they're like, oh, for our protection. And they're like, no, it's just so embarrassing. And it's so perfect, both like perfect perfect based on like the overall gender politics of any situation like that situation in particular but then also based on like 
everything that's kind of been revealed about Woodward and Bernstein <laughs> since. You're like, yeah, this is perfect for these guys. These like deeply, deeply insecure men <laughs> who are portrayed as such in this movie. Don't you love that like Carl Bernstein has effectively been played by Bruce McCullough and Jack Nicholson and Dustin Hoffman. I mean, what a trio. <laughs> They're all short, I guess. That's what connects. <laughs> the movie's also like a great demonstration of like when you underestimate someone, it just like always like bites you in the ass. Actually, my partner is also pointing out this is like a great continuation of us talking about Legally Blonde because it's like, yes, once again, a legal thriller where the action is driven by bimbo tactics. <laughs> yeah. These people who are underestimated have like brought down the president of the United States. Yeah. By seducing Ryan Reynolds and convincing him to make out. <laughs> I mean, if, if only Ryan Reynolds is standing between your incriminating tapes of the president and the press, then like, I don't know, Haldeman, that seems like it's on you. Yeah. yeah, I think that's so true. This is such a continuation of the Legally Blonde conversation. And just I remember, too, the first time Haldeman meets the girls and is trying to figure out what they know. He's like, I've met yams with more going on upstairs than these two. And it's like, you know, that might be true. I mean, it's not like they're very clever. They just like they're 15 and they don't work for the White House and they haven't been corrupt for 30 years. So like they don't have that <laughs> body of knowledge. But what that underestimates is that they're like good people with senses of justice. And like that will actually get you somewhere some of the time in America. Yeah. And that, I mean, that speaks to like what I felt like the weed paranoia could be for like guys like this is again, like I, I think you're absolutely right about sort of the racialized aspect, but also just like, God, if I smoke weed, I might see myself being myself and uh, I can't afford to do that. None of these guys can afford to do that. Their whole enterprise is built on a total lack of self-reflection. Yeah. <laughs> is the end of Mad Men that Don Draper, did he smoke weed one time? And is that why he went to that retreat to invent the Coke commercial? Well, there is a great acid episode of Mad Men where Roger and other folks do acid and they obviously leave with the wrong conclusions. Hmm. But yeah, I mean, essentially, like it is hinted at Don has a hippie-esque realization at the end of Mad Men and figures out a way to capitalize on it. Hmm. Hmm. I remember people were like mad when that was the ending. Like not mad like they were about Dexter where they just felt like, all their love had been a lie, but <laughs> yeah. I mean, I thought it was not that this is what we're talking about, but like, I thought it was brilliant. It was like delightfully cynical. Yeah. I, and I think some people really liked it. And some people were like, I guess it is like if you have a character who you love, the different ways that people are loving that character will be revealed by how they react differently to the ending, which seems in this case to be like, he's never going to get free of himself. He's always going to be that fucking guy. Well, yeah, and it's all that's also terrifying to watch as a person who has problems. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's why teen lawyer will have redemption arcs. Yeah. You don't want to see that, that you're doomed. No. But I do a little bit. <laughs> so I don't think I'd seen this movie since it came out. And I don't have like deep, deep memories of it. But I think that this is like immediately became of many, many incredible roles for Kirsten Dunst. Like this is my favorite. Kirsten Dunst role like it just immediately took number one and there are so many potential number ones like her and Drop Dead Gorgeous is so incredible her and all of the season of Fargo she was in is so incredible her and Melancholia is incredible but like again just like the juxtaposition of being someone who is like sweet eager enthusiastic and also like has some sense of morals <laughs> against this backdrop is scene for scene the funniest shit like like even the part where it's such a throwaway scene, but the part, <laughs> the part where she approaches Arlene's house or approaches Arlene's place and Arlene's up there and she's blowing the dog whistle to let her know to come. And Kirsten Dunst looks up and she just whispers, she like loud whispers, okay. And then spells out the okay with her hands and then puts two thumbs up. <laughs> Every choice that these two make are like fucking Oscar worthy. Every choice is perfect. <laughs> Yeah, mm -hmm. I gotta say, I feel like the actresses were not given like a ton to work with, but then they acted like the absolute shit out of them. Like they are just <laughs> like by far <laughs> the most like sparkling and interesting part of this movie. <laughs> 
And just like also like I love the sequence of like Arlene taking down her Bobby Sherman like paraphernalia <laughs> and replacing it with Nixon, like cut out heart cutouts of like Nixon and just the commitment she like brings to playing a teenage girl who like romantically is interested in Richard Nixon is like so fucking hilarious. <laughs> and then like the dream sequence she has where he builds her a sand castle of the White House. <laughs> <laughs> I also love that that's her romantic fantasy of Nixon. Like, I think they had to really walk a fine line because it would have been creepy if they had gone, you know, right. too far, you know. But I love that her fantasy is that he's like covering her eyes and showing her his sandcastle and he's really proud of his sandcastle. Yeah. <laughs> I think like the thing that like is so delightful about this movie too is like we're just like in this race to the bottom of movies that are gritty reboots of shit mm. and like I think that there should be more dick reboots of shit like I think like yes you know, like, if you think about like all of the telling of Watergate or of Nixon it's all dour obviously and like is scary mm -hmm. and harrowing and I would love more things to like feel more like what we do in the shadows you know like i'd love more shit to like speak to yeah. the absurdity yeah. of the situation and be like sweet and silly at the same time of like conveying some shit that happened at the time <laughs> you know and this did, this obviously wasn't shooting for accuracy but like it's a much more enjoyable telling of like a, a tumultuous <laughs> period in in American history than any of the others on offer. Yeah. And I mean, do you guys think that there's more of a trend toward or less of a fear lately of having characters who are genuinely sweet people and seeing the drama in that? Because like what jumps to mind is like what we do in the shadows and also how much people have loved Ted Lasso. Oh, yeah. Mm. It's also the Ted Lassification of like all the president's men. Yes. <laughs> yeah, totally. Sweetness like never goes away. Like that's kind of what's nice about the movie is that like it's like you've taken these like sweet girls and you've thrown them. It's like a Quentin Tarantino reboot of like Inglorious Bastards, but with like really sweet teenage girls who like never stop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Sarah, that's a fantastic question, especially following like. It's been really interesting watching people like respond publicly to Ted Lasso because it's mm. either like this is great and incredibly important and you should watch it and it's moving and it talks about like whatever, like mental health stuff. What it it does all this stuff. And I think that that's like super important. And I I love the show. But like also just watching there be any backlash against it, it's like this is the only show in all the shows. That is not kind of mean. <laughs> what it does, like, is it ends up satiating something for people that I don't know that they thought that they were missing in some way as, mm. you know, like this starting with the Sopranos, it was like a fucking race to the, not to the bottom, because that sounds like it's inherently negative, but there was like right. a race to the grittiest. Like, you could watch a show <laughs> that like was for a family and there might be an acid bath scene. You just, you, that you might see that. And it's like, what? Why, why are we, why is that the direction we went? So I do think like a Ted Lasso thing, like makes people be like, oh, like I like this flavor and didn't know that I did. And I actually thought liking this flavor made me a critically inept person. Yeah. And the continued success of succession makes it clear to me that like, we're not getting rid of this trend. Like this is just stories about the accrual of power and how it corrupts you and harms you and makes you a bad ad are just like they've been with us forever it's like most of Shakespeare's good stuff it's just you know that's always going to be with us but I wonder if it's like we have been ruled by these people you know we have spent four years that somehow had 10 years squirreled away inside of them ruled by like an angry scary man and his scared scary sons and like yeah. What if we try to tell stories not about all the ways that a human psyche can be destroyed, but about <laughs> how we can actually try and climb out of that? I think Enlightenment, which was pretty short lived, oh, is yeah. also a, an example. And like people loved it so much and then still talk about it. And there, there are all these little anomalies along the way. But like, yeah, it, it's never been at no anywhere near the scale. Yeah, totally. I think Glow was that, too. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I think Glow didn't necessarily get the chance that Ted Lasso did because it's about women. And because Netflix only gives you two seasons, right? Wasn't that a Netflix show? Or did they get three seasons? I think they planned for four and they only got three, unfortunately. Mm. You know, I just saw this tweet from somebody who retweeted us talking about Dick and they said, I love this movie as a child. One of my all time favorites. I credit this with igniting my passion to fight corrupt government. And like... I can pretty much guarantee like Oliver Stone's Nixon didn't do that for teens in the 90s. No. (laughs) 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 I think like especially in like the 90s and in the time that I joke as the time that existed before nuance, like it's a time when it was like this thing is good for you and it tastes like it. And this thing is bad for you and it tastes like it. And this movie was like, what if we could do both a little bit and I don't think it necessarily did it like with like a sense of responsibility (laughs) but I think it like inadvertently pointed out to people that it's like by way of making like a teen movie out of it it certainly Mm -hmm. like exposed parts of history that like people weren't self-subscribing to I mean I think there's something nice about it starting off on the foot of being obviously a broad satire because like there's tons of historical narratives that play it straight and make up a ton of shit but it feels real because everybody's like standing somberly in a room with a glass of whiskey and having a hushed conversation if it has that like feeling of historical verisimilitude we'll actually buy a lot more fakery than if we have just a broad comedy that opens with French Stewart as the first face that we see. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. And we're also kind of like in 1999, we're coming off of like Monica Lewinsky and like another presidential impeachment, but it's right. nice to see like teenage girls being thrown into the white house and nothing really that bad like happens to them (laughs) even though there's like an insinuation of creepiness the entire time like the reason they can keep getting into these rooms is because the men are like oh hello girls which is like very a very light touch that like i appreciated that's such a oh god that's such a good point and like the first time we see we're more introduced to them there's two settings which is we see them being teenage girls and having like a great time writing this letter and then we see them being spied on from yeah. across the way by two men yeah and one is like i'll take the one who's dancing and it's like they are teenage girls like those are teenage mm-hmm. girls so like there is always the specter for sure and they like nod to it but it's not like you don't have to deal with a scene that you have to warn somebody about. Right. Mm-hmm. I like that they're like, you know, protected the entire time. But the magic of this movie that also puts G. Gordon Liddy in the stairwell going, the gemstone is glistening. <laughs> 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 Whatever else their like code words are. <laughs> Alex, I enjoyed your analysis that Harry Shearer is playing Liddy just as Smithers. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. <laughs> the closest Harry Sher Simpson voice I could approximate for his Liddy was hilariously Smithers because Smithers is such like an effet character. And I remember growing up and seeing Liddy on TV somehow like he was like one of the first person I re- people remembering being like a fucking criminal that just was also on TV who like he was like <laughs> my first example of like you could just be a criminal like in high office or around high office and then suddenly be a personality. Like I, it it was always perplexing to me, but like he was such a like shaved head ding dong. (laughs) His whole thing was, he was like a strong man and he's played by Harry Shearer who looks like him in the, as they set him up. But like, just like the touch of him having Smithers voice is so funny. (laughs) Let's just try and name the like comedy bench that we have here because we have two kids in the hall we have bruce mccullough as bernstein we have dave foley as hr haldeman alex you initially thought frank stewart was scott thompson which would have been great but sadly no yeah for the first 15 seconds i was so excited scott thompson was in until i <laughs> my vision clarified and i was like damn it <laughs> still good still frank stewart. still frank stewart i'll take him so we got someone from third rock from the sun which <laughs> is one of i think like the great no longer watched that much sitcom of the 90s. I know a lot of people are watching it, but not enough. We have Anna Gasteyer from Saturday Night Live. We have Will Ferrell from Saturday Night Live. We have Jim Brewer from Saturday Night Live. (laughs) We have 
Terry Gar. Ryan Reynolds from the 21st century. Ryan Reynolds from the 21st century. And also two guys, a girl in a pizza place. Two guys, a girl in a pizza place is Ryan Reynolds. I am so glad that you remember that. I'm like, am I the only person who watched that show? I love that show. Harry Shearer from The Simpsons. And Brian Krakow from My So-Called Life. Devin Gummersall. And I'm sure a bunch of other people I'm not thinking of, but that's like 10 people with comedy chops that I can name off the top of my head who are just sort of like making the story happen. It's beautiful. Did you say Saul Rubinek? You must have. No, I didn't say Saul Rubinek. Number 11, Saul Rubinek. Yeah, my God. Saul Rubinek in in True True Romance Romance himself. (laughs) Fuck, man. Saul Rubinek in True Romance is like the best is the best is the best Alyssa do you know this portrayal no I don't (laughs) it's fantastic what's his character name in that I think it might be Saul that can't be right he basically plays Tarantino before Tarantino was yet Tarantino wow (laughs) (laughs) who wrote true romance and also I think he's like closely based on some specific like Hollywood producer kingmaker guy but he just is like this coked up angry insecure oh i do remember now yes yeah. <laughs> so like i recently watched true romance i'm like why isn't this kind of me i'm like oh now i remember there he is oh my god he's yes. so good i love him and he, where he's like so abusive to his assistant bronson pink show and then when he finds out bronson is like arranged spoiler a narcotic sting he's like i treated you like a son <laughs> <laughs> And he loves Christian Slater. So every Saul Rubinick <laughs> joke as Kissinger in this was my favorite. Every single one was so funny, like especially in the scene that you were referring to earlier when he's sort of he's like with the girls and Nixon takes the girls into the office and shuts Kissinger out. And Kissinger mentions <laughs> that he has an interview with the Nobel Committee coming up, reminding us the very real fact that Henry Kissinger won the fucking Nobel Peace. <laughs> Prize. <laughs> the Peace Prize. There's only one a year, you guys. <laughs> like, big cosmic joke in the first place. They fit into this movie in a side throwaway line. Yeah, it's perfect. I mean, there's so much absurdity in real life that it's like, it's only a little bit of tweaking to like, get it into this movie. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. It doesn't take much. Yeah. Can you speak more, Alyssa, about seeing this as like a good or like appropriate continuation of a legally blonde conversation? Well, I do feel like my heart is not as much with this as with legally blonde, because Mm. in the beginning of watching it the second time, Dick, I was like a little bit worried that there's a lot of comedy that's also coming from kind of making fun of the girls sometimes. Mm. Or there are moments that feels like it's the expense of the girls. Mm more so than in Legally Blonde. Mm. But it's still great. I, don't, it's like, I mean, when they start doing things, it's still great. There's still like a kindness to both of them, even though they're also kind of like, I like I love that Betsy's like a little bit of a jerk to her older brother <laughs> the entire time too. Yeah. Like when she starts sobbing about him going to Vietnam, but that she's also like, what am I going to do with his crappy furniture? <laughs> But that there's like a genuine kind of straightforward goodness to them that is also like part of like Legally Blonde L's character, like a straightforward, this is how you're kind to people. This is how you're not kind to people. And it's not, it doesn't have to be super complicated. Like you, they're, they're not doing like a lot of moral gymnastics here. Mm-hmm. And like, I think if you kind of just pare down morality a little bit to like, is this kind or is this not kind? It's like works a lot better than like, I think the way we try to justify our actions now. Hmm. Mm. Yeah, they have no ideology. Yeah. They're just kind. Yeah. They're kind. And they love dogs. Right. Their concern over the dog leads them to uncover Watergate. (laughs) And like when they finally decide like we're going to like take down the president, they're not like thinking like this is the fate of the country. Like if you watch like all the president's men, you have Ben Bradley being Hmm. like the fate of the country like rests with you, Robert Redford. And Dustin Hoffman. And your handsomeness. Yeah. But they're just like very straightforward. Like Nixon is being mean. Let's take out the meanie, which is like, I think if we all thought like a little bit more like that, it would make a lot more sense for people to be involved and stuff. Yeah. It's interesting to think about because I think we accept it as a truth prematurely that like 
the ability to be shocked means that you're naive and you need to like get with it and it's a mean world and <laughs> figure it out. Whereas really, I think the ability to be shocked also connects with like having some kind of a moral center. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, it's interesting to think about like the fact that we like watched this movie as Trump was being like elected president and trying to think about like this movie in the context of the Trump presidency and thinking about like Watergate in the context of the Trump presidency. Yeah. Because, you know, Trump was impeached twice. And when I think about the way I think about boomers reacting to the impeachments or their like kind of expectation of something happening to Trump and the way something happened to Nixon Hmm. in my brain, I'm like, oh, that's naive. But then I'm kind of like, well, why am I like being so cynical and snarky and dismissive of like, like these boomers who are glued to MSNBC, like hoping for something to happen. Like I understand why they think something is going to happen because they saw it happen with Watergate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they, they play that in an interesting way. Like we see that in the movie, like the progress with the, Mm -hmm. the parents who at the beginning are like, I don't want to hear anymore about Watergate. It's about these like shitty journalists who are trying to take down the president. And then like, you know, as Sarah mentioned at the beginning, we're talking about 18 months condensed to like a, you know, spring fling basically. And then like by the end of it, they're like, I guess something really did happen. It's like so nostalgic and quaint to think that like people saw a bad thing happen and they were like, I don't like the bad thing. I want a different thing to happen. It feels so, you know, to your point, like it feels almost like blindly optimistic, but like it it comes from the fact that it, it happened one time <laughs> right. right yeah and like thinking about like what they're showing with those parents is like once we like really blindly trusted the government and then mm. investigations happened and we stopped doing that which was good because the government was like doing shady things and now we no longer blindly trust the government but why can't we do something when shady things are happening anymore why don't we believe that's like possible mm. like yeah. why why is that optimism Gone. I mean, it's like, I mean, Dick is like a very optimistic movie. There's that point when they're like getting out of the like trash after like the DC plumbers have like been chasing them yes. down in the truck. <laughs> then the like very patriotic little music plays and they're like, we're going to get Dick. <laughs> and it's like <laughs> a really sweet, optimistic, like kind of like American citizen moment there. And I like really miss like feeling that ever. I don't really feel that anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, and something interesting happens and movies about the press uncovering corruption. It happens in this, it happens in All the President's Men, it happens in Spotlight. This idea that like, once the truth is out, it's like, okay, yay, that's the end of the movie. And then naturally, like, once the story is out, then like, in about 40 seconds of movie time, the injustice will be corrected somehow. And then you look at what the press is up to, and aside from all the ways that the power of the press is being, you know, infringed on, there's also the fact that Like you can have the truth out there and it just it won't really change anything. I think this was one of the sort of lessons of my adult life. And it's kind of there's some connection for me personally, like between that and like a family dynamic where you also hold out hope that like someday you will be able to articulate your position articulately and convincingly enough that the people who are making your life harder will be like, oh, I get it now. I'm going to I understand your humanity and I will address this. And like, that's just not, it's not true of families a lot. And it's not true of countries a lot. And you can have, you know, we've all seen this in the past few years where there's just bombshell reporting that reveals a really horrifying truth about a situation that could be changed. And the people who have the power to do that are like, And also like all the examples you just used are like pre-social media examples. So like, I don't know how you Mm. make a movie, even with like Spotlight, it's like, Everyone learned, but the Catholic Church was still the Catholic Church. So because like the power structure was just like bigger than the macro media narrative. Mm -hmm. And so like, I don't know how you make any movie like this that satisfies. like, I don't know how they'll make movies about the Trump shit. Yeah. You know, because as you said, like the structure for movies like this used to be like, and then it got out into the world and you know what happened. And (laughs) it entered usually like a pretty simple media, simple that's both like positive and negative media environment, where it's like the Washington. Post reported on something. One of three news anchors said it to the world that captured 80% of the television public Mm -hmm. and opinions were formed accordingly. And now it's like, you know, we got them. And then who ends up turning that reporting into propaganda? Not to say that like American macro news narratives weren't themselves propaganda in one way or another, but it's like Mm -hmm. who dices that up and then, you know, sends that to whatever consolidated news agency our parents look at on Facebook. 
Like, the, <laughs> like the truth gets out and then, or the quote truth gets out and is diced up and sent out in this like totally perverted way mm -hmm. that interestingly allows for things like you're wrong about to comment on the problems of the press in the nineties. Mm -hmm. But then the negative side of it is it enables this extraordinarily fragmented media structure where like people look at what has happened in one way or another and is like, that's just proof that communists are in the white house. Like, right. fuck man. <laughs> like there used to be this like connection of like truth and power being like equal forces in the world, that like the truth <laughs> can like take down power when it's corrupt. But like now it's it almost seems like truth it's just so scattered and it doesn't matter. And it's, it's subjective now. It's like, if you think about what Nixon was doing, the level of infiltration of like pretending to be Democrats and like writing fake letters, pretending that like some Democrat candidate is like against French Canadians or like, you know, like the elaborate <laughs> methods that the Republican party used to have to go through <laughs> to, <laughs> to like take down the opposition. And now all the Republican party has to do is like pay a data mining company, a bunch of money to hmm. like get information for us in order to like send us a targeted Facebook ad. God. And it's just so much harder. Like we, I think we, if you, you see it on social media, too, when people are like, I'm going to tell you the truth about something. And then everyone is like chiming in with their truth, like what, what has happened to them about like, say, mm. like an example is I like recently saw another an Asian American writer posting about like an attack, like a an incident of anti-Asian hate. And you see everyone mm -hmm. also replying with their own incidents. And you think like that is enough to do something because we're used to this mm. feeling of like saying the truth is enough to accomplish something. But like the landscape is different now. It doesn't work that way. Right. Yeah. It feels like in the metaphor you're using, like the truth is like this imperiled species that we need to like help bring back the populations of, you know, like the California condor yeah. or something, which is kind of a nice way to think about it. Or if it's just our attention spans or something like that. Like when I think about the way my my in-laws talk about like the revelations of Watergate, like which is before the 24 hour news cycle, but they were still like glued to their TV sets yeah. following what was going on. And the pace at which we get information is like so much faster. And when they start like regaling me about like Watergate, I'm like, I can't I like this feels really slow, but also too much at the same time. Whereas with us, it's like with Trump, it was just like every day there was like something new and like yeah. it wasn't really accumulating to anything. Mm -hmm. yeah. It didn't have the same like arc. Also, imagine if Nixon had tweeted. I mean, he wouldn't. I oh, don't God think he would damn. have been that shameless about because his whole thing was not sharing his thoughts, interestingly. Right. But like, what if he had anyway, Alex? <laughs> I think the movie that actually does this, I, I just said, like, you couldn't do this now, but I'm wrong. Like, Don't Look Up does this. Mm. It's a boring movie that I don't like. But like <laughs> and I love the filmmakers movies. General, I was just like, I know what we're doing here and I, I'm kind of bored and I don't think that this is taking it for me. A lot of people loved it. I, what, I don't want to take that away. Were you like, oh, it's an allegory? <laughs> uh, yeah. Sure, yeah. I was like, I get it. Uh, but it actually does this very, very well. What we're talking about, which is like a bigger bombshell than Nixon is like, we're all going to fucking die in 20 years if we don't do shit and mm. we're not doing it and people are trying to talk about it and we see how that message gets chopped up in one way or another. And I think that that movie does a, a very good job of that. It just wasn't for me. But to your point, Alyssa, about sort of like that, this was before the 24 hour news cycle. Like, do you love the end of all the president's men as much as I do? Which is like, they're like, how do we convey that a lot of the shit, it wasn't just like it got out. It was like a couple months worth of happenings that happened and they convey it all through the headlines. Mm -hmm. I love that yeah. condensed timeline so much, much. I think it's so interestingly satisfying. Yeah. Sorry if you haven't seen all the president's men but it's text on screen it's not a huge spoiler also how do we mic this entire typewriter yeah. which is great <laughs> like i was talking about this with someone the other day like about the source family like the cult health food family mm. oh, based in yeah. la and he and rachel simon just actually tweeted that todd haynes is making a series about the source family but i was like i'd love to see Again, I'm defaulting to what we do in the shadows, but like I'd love more serious shit. And I, I understand that there's like actual people involved, so you need to be a bit more careful with these. But I'd love more serious shit to be dealt with in the tone of what we do in the shadows or this or dick. Like, I don't care what it is, but like I would love more things that feel like they are 
out of the expectation of tone and genre of the actual historical situation. Yes. Yeah. I would love that as well. <laughs> Me too. Movement. See? All right. Unity. Think of it as the bimbofication of history. Just like. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Because who makes history? Bimbos. Who doesn't get credit? Also bimbos. <laughs> I was thinking about like, what are the shows that I spend my time watching? I have seen all of Veep like 25 times and yes. everything mm-hmm. else is iffy. And I think I've, I know I said this before, but I think what I love about Veep is that like it has themes. It is about things. It over time is, I think, a really beautiful character study of all these people. And not that I've read those Caro books. If you have then I'm very proud of you. But like I imagine it has a similar arc to all of Caro's Johnson books, which are, is just like what happens when you have a ruthless desire for power and you are able to accrue more and more of it. And then you finally get everything you want and you realize that over time you have sawn off every remaining piece of your soul and used it as bait. (laughs) And that's like a really interesting thing to think about. And I know I probably have watched it as much of it as I have partly because of the last, you know, little bit of time politically, but Also, it's a funny show, and I go to it with the expectation that if I've had a stressful day, I'm going to laugh at something. And I do think that history is like, history is a lot, man. (laughs) Like, if we can have the expectation that we're going to encounter it in a funny way, I do think that that would make it, that would be one of the things that would make it more emotionally accessible to people. I'm for it. It also gets to a truth that like history is sometimes just incredibly absurd and also that like yeah. people in power are not like always smart. Like I don't know why we always assume that there's some com- malicious intent. Sometimes it's just like yeah. random people doing dumb stuff <laughs> who just also happen to have a lot of power. In fact, mostly it seems like. Yeah. Yeah. There's the great scene where they address that in one way or another where she gives the presentation to her current events class <laughs> and her teacher like reads it as allegory essentially like reads it as like she's using the narrative to explain like how absurd the overall situation is and like I feel like that's like the movie commenting on itself which I really appreciate saying exactly what you're saying Alyssa mm, yeah I never thought of that you're you're a person whose type is Dan Hedaya yes thank you for all of these movies that we've seen with Dan Hedaya <laughs> in there where do you think this ranks in the Dan Hedaya filmography <laughs> I mean, I think this is a movie that makes you appreciate Dan Hedaya, the actor, because this is like the era of the prestige Nixon portrayal. And he just is going full ham. And also, in a way, this feels like the truest Nixon. Not that I knew Nixon back in the day, but, you know, it just it feels like the Nixon that I know from watching any kind of filmed media of him. I, you know what I also love is this. (laughs) This is another throwaway. There's so many good throwaway moments in this where the girls are calling him and it's like late at night and he's sitting on his couch eating like ice cream, I assume, maybe cottage cheese. And then love American style is starting on the TV and he's like, <laughs> oh, starting. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. That's amazing. And it's so good. I think it's like a really smart, wonderful portrayal of someone who... Maybe some people over time have wanted to put the like great man veneer on him, but it's just like, this is a story about how maybe all you need to get to the White House is just the naked need to have as much power as you possibly can and to eat all of the other larvae because you woke up first and you're going to be queen of this beehive. Dang it. (laughs) This is a very cheap reference because it's straight from Wikipedia, but in the reception part about Dick, it says Rita Kempley of the Washington Post described the movie as more fun than you'd ever thought you'd have with Richard Nixon. Yeah. And Kempley called Hedaya no less adept than Hopkins in Hopkins' performance. Yes. Thank you. Which was something that was echoed by like a handful of critics at the time, which is like just because this is a comedy and it's Dan Hedaya doesn't mean it is not a great Richard Nixon portrayal. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) All right. We know that Richard Nixon is a father and one of the Johns is a father. Arlene's dad is dead. There are fathers throughout this movie. We know there are fathers generally. Who in this movie is the daddy? (laughs) I think it's Betsy. I mean, I think it's both of the girls, but Betsy never stops believing in Arlene. And I think that without Betsy's belief, there is no, there's no the two of them. Hmm. I love that. Alyssa, what's your take? 
I feel like I just want to say Arlene just to be contrary. <laughs> yeah, I support that. But like Arlene is willing to kind of fall headfirst in love with things so quickly in this way that like I really related mm. to and I think is like a really valuable quality that we lose as quickly as possible. Hmm. Even though like part of what she falls in love with headfirst with is Nixon, but also that like same drive is what impels her to be like, you know, we're going to take him down, like to go in the opposite direction. And so I think her kind of like 110% commitment to doing whatever is in front of her is really great. I support both of these takes. I mean, these are both the correct takes. Like there is no, <laughs> there's no other take. And so I'm just as an honorable mention, I just want to mention Saul Rubinick as Henry Kissinger. I'm not, not Henry Kissinger. Saul Rubinick as Henry Kissinger in every one of these scenes is trying to be someone who is trying to do something in the face of chaos and what he believes is the right thing. And I love him just like constantly being up against the wall with having to like deal with Nixon nonsense sense again not necessarily historically accurate but i appreciate the portrayal <laughs> <laughs> Alyssa, remind us again of your book so people can buy it little rabbit it's coming out from bloomsbury on may 3rd you can buy it at any indie bookstore I love indie bookstores in particular or bookshop or i mean I, I don't like telling people what to do with their money so buy it in whatever way is convenient for you <laughs> or check it out from the library libraries are great or pressure your friend to buy it and then you can read it over their shoulder. <laughs> yeah. The traditional way to buy, buy a book, really. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. See y'all. All right, everybody, that is it for this week's episode. Thank you so much to Alyssa Song Day for being here. Remember to check out Alyssa's book. We'll have that linked in the show notes. Thank you so much to Carolyn Kendrick for producing the episodes, making them sound so great. Thank you to Miranda Zickler for editing the episodes. We could not appreciate you more. Thank you for listening to the show. You can find us on Instagram. You can find us on Twitter. You can find us on Patreon, like I said, where you can find bonus episodes. Thank you so much for being here. You, my friends, are good. <laughs>